Football is back, and Domino's Hawaii couldn't be more excited. Our community has been through a lot this year, and so to show our appreciation for all your efforts and sacrifice, we'd like to do our part in helping you enjoy the games by offering large specialty pizzas for $15.99 and our new buffalo wings for $5.99. Just log on to the Domino's Hawaii website or app, and remember, while you watch your favorite team, you can be assured that our team continues to make your health and safety a top priority. Hey, what's up, Jordan? We're very excited about the show today. We have an Olympic gold medalist figure skater. In fact, maybe like the Olympic gold medalist figure skater, Christy Yamaguchi is going to be our guest. So a very, very cool show lined up. But we like to warm things up at the top of each episode uh, with just a little amuse-bouche type of topic. And so we're going to get into the fact that the Pittsburgh Steelers are 6-0 and and the only remaining undefeated team in the NFL. So the question to you, Jordan, just to get things revved up in this pregame section of the episode, is Pittsburgh the best team right now in the NFL? And if not, who is? You know, right now, I, I got to say, I, I think Pittsburgh is the best team in the NFL. It's so funny, right? Because if this was college football, Pittsburgh would be the number one ranked team in the country. They would be a top of every poll. They'd be the favorite to be like the number one seed in the college football playoff. But so much can change in an NFL season, obviously, with them still having 10 games left. But because the, the caveat is, if they were to play the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC Championship game, I'm picking Patrick Mahomes. I'm still picking the Kansas City Chiefs in that situation. But right now, six weeks in, you know, after a, a Chiefs win yesterday where they, they really didn't need to do much on offense because defense and special teams are so good, uh, I think the most well-rounded team is, is Pittsburgh with what they're doing on defense and how they contain Derrick Henry. I know they didn't shut him down, but they have had the most success against that behemoth of a human being. And then what they're doing on offense, man, Pitt, ben, Big Ben's turning back the clock with all these skill guys he's got. Yeah, I think overall, right, the, the full sample size of, of this far into the season, you'd have to suggest the Pittsburgh Steelers have shown the least amount of vulnerabilities. You could make an argument maybe that the hottest team or the team that's starting to play its best brand of football and, and maybe could be up there in the conversation is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because they mm -hmm. seem to be finding themselves on both sides of the ball. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think the Steelers have any real true weaknesses, right? I mean, Ben Roethlisberger's throwing the ball well. They have a solid running game behind James Connor, uh, their receiving core, and I've always kind of wondered if if Juju Smith-Schuster is is necessarily a number one wide receiver. He represents the Polynesians, and so that's pretty awesome for sure. Uh, but I've always wondered, you know, can he carry the load as a number one guy? But I think as it has turned out with Deontay Johnson and certainly with rookie Chase Claypool, they actually have a stable of receivers where it maybe doesn't require for a, a true number one to stand out. And then defensively, they kind of look like the vintage Pittsburgh Steelers defenses that we've seen in the years where they have contended. So yeah, right now, uh, I, I don't think you can argue with the fact that they're 6-0 and for a reason. Got a little lucky with a late missed field goal against another previously unbeaten team in the Tennessee Titans. But that said, I would say that the Pittsburgh Steelers are the team that look the least vulnerable. All right, and with that, we want to officially welcome you to the latest episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley, our Hawaii sports podcast. And this is podcast episode number 45, and we are doing it right because we have the great Christy Yamaguchi joining us. Of course, won Olympic gold medal on behalf of the United States in 1992. Uh, she has also 
worked very hard with building her foundation, which started back in 1996, not long after she won the gold, Always Dream Foundation, uh, which at its core is focused on children's literacy. And in fact, she has made Hawaii among the locations where the organization has placed its focus. Uh, we are very stoked to be able to talk with her. And she has a connection to your family, Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, her, her family through my dad. Uh, we've gotten to know each other a, a little bit over the years. And, and she, uh, she is very fond of the islands and, and her and her family. Uh, her husband, Brett, is a former NHL player, former Stanley Cup winner. Uh, so they've, they've got a lot of hardware in the Yamaguchi <laughs> Hedekin household there. Uh, so yeah, always fun. They're, they're some of the nicest people around and uh, she was very gracious to uh, grant us some time. Yeah, yeah. It was very fun talking with her. So we'll play that interview in just a little bit. But first, it's game time. And we get into the nitty-gritty topics, including the Rainbow Warriors with a victory. UH football winning in its season opener on the road at Fresno State, 34-19. Now, despite a fumble on the opening kickoff, which I thought, oh boy, this is not a good omen to start the Todd Graham era. Uh, and an early 7-0 deficit, Hawaii was able to exact control, in essence, against the Bulldogs. Shevin Cordero was great. Starting quarterback ran for 116 yards, two touchdowns, threw for 229 on 20 of 30 passing. And it was really really the running game, Cordero included. Miles Reed, their lead back, ran for 109 yards. Calvin Turner, a former quarterback at Jacksonville who transferred in, has been kind of used as the Taysom Hill uh, type of weapon for Hawaii. I thought that was a great comparison that was used in the pregame uh, by our good buddy Rob DeMello on the broadcast. But Turner scored twice on the ground and was featured frequently in that Wildcat formation. The Warrior defense forced four turnovers, three interceptions, including two by Eugene Ford. Todd Graham became the first UH head coach to be victorious in his opening game since Bob Wagner in 1987. So, Jordan, your thoughts on Hawaii's season opening win? I thought that was a great stat. You, you never would have guessed, right, with all the successful head coaches that Hawaii's had uh, since Wags that uh, he was the last one. I was impressed. I really was, especially the way things started for the University of Hawaii, right, fumbling that opening kickoff. Uh, they give up the seven-point lead early on. And, and after that, they, you know, their, their confidence wasn't shaken. It was an opportunistic defense that, that once again, maybe isn't going to be just shut down, right? Maybe a little light up front, but, but very attack-minded. Uh, it is a group that obviously forced the turnovers. Uh, and then offensively, very capable. They have a lot of weapons in the receiving core. And, and obviously, uh, Bussy and Jared Smart look to be the sort of the reliable targets, but they, they rotate dudes in there, right? Whether it's Nick Mardner or some of the other cast of characters as pass catchers, but this running attack with, with Chevin Cordero, obviously as a big ingredient, but uh, that is a three headed monster that complements each other very, very well. It was, it was kind of interesting because the two guys who really jumped out to me watching the game were two transfers to Calvin Turner, who comes over from Jacksonville and on the defensive side of the football, uh, it was Quentin Frazier, the, you know, undersized, if you will, at 6'1", 195-pound linebacker who actually transferred over from Division to Azusa Pacific where defensive coordinator Victor Santa Cruz was his head coach the last three years. Uh, so he kind of follows Coach Santa Cruz here. And he was another guy that was sort of making plays all over the field. And, and, and he was another guy along with Turner. Turner just has this balance to him running the football that it, you just can't teach. And then you, you throw in the power of Reed – uh, and Hunter and, and his sort of quick twitch. Uh, this, this looks like a team, and we knew the offensive line, right? The offensive line was going to be something that they had to rely on, that they expected to rely on. Um, and, and we've seen them now 
forge some holes in the running game like maybe we haven't seen quite the last few years. It, it was an impressive win on the road, falling behind early uh, and, and down a couple of injuries as well early on, especially up front. Uh, I got to give a lot of credit to Todd Graham and his guys. Yeah, I really appreciate what they did offensively, right? It was uh, an attack that wasn't necessarily according to advertisements, right? We kind of thought, are they going to be throwing the ball all over the field? And certainly they showed at least a a strong sample of that. But they took what the defense was giving them and they identified very early on that there was going to be an opportunity to kind of pound the rock against Fresno. Uh, And how often do you see that, right? I mean, I know Fresno State's coming off of a season where their defense was pretty abysmal, right? They gave up 30 points a game. There wasn't a lot in terms of expectation. I don't think people realistically thought all of a sudden it would be a vintage Fresno State Bulldog defense. But that said, uh, it is still rare to see Hawaii pound the football against a Fresno State team like that, particularly on the road. And I get these are unique circumstances. But that said, you're right. Up front, Hawaii looked stout. And it was a season opener. And and there were limitations in terms of the preparations. Uh, And so, you know, you saw some false start penalties. You saw a little bit of discontinuity at times. Gene Pryor at a couple of false start penalties over there on the right tackle side. Uh, but yeah, you mentioned injuries. Cole Leval was out. We did not know that going into the game. So Michael Eletise goes in at left guard, played admirably. Uh, and then I also thought on the defensive side of the ball was really interesting, right? We were sort of questioning, hey, look, how literally can we take this depth chart and position listing that UH presented to everybody prior to the opener. And as it turns out, it was more of a general estimation as to what this defense (laughs) was going to look like. Basically, according to the depth chart, you were going to have like a 4-3 type of traditional defense uh, with certain safeties that were moved up to linebacker, linebackers that were moved up to defensive end. Darius Mulisau ended up looking a little bit more like a rover type of player in that defense. Uh, It was actually, for the most part, almost like San Diego State's 3-3-5 defense, where it was very amorphous, right? Almost nebulous, where you didn't know where the blitz was coming. You didn't really know who was going to be lining up with their hand down. Uh, It was very versatile in that way. And hey, look, I think they would have liked to have been able to get more pressure via some of the three down linemen. Uh, Hayner, the quarterback for Fresno State, had a lot of time to make throws. Unfortunately, Hawaii back end defensively was very solid to cover some of that up. But I really appreciated the versatility and kind of the difficulty required in identifying where some of that pressure was coming. It was uh, an interesting looking defensive scheme for sure. Uh, and, and you figure will only get even more complex uh, and more versatile as the season moves on. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine. And, and yeah, I, I, you kind of got the feeling, you know, we, we talked a little bit about it uh, defensively where it sort of looked three, three, five in personnel, right? What it was going to look like when they lined up on the field was going to be a different story, obviously. And they've got some some um, experience in the secondary with guys like Ford. Um, and, and, and Darius Musa was another guy who really, really excelled, I thought. And, and his ability to sort of move around, or at least the, the coaching staff's willingness to put him in different situations, that basically just takes advantage of his biggest strength, which is he finds the football and he makes tackles, right? He is a guy that, that just is built for that. He is a linebacker through and through. And so, yeah, maybe you'll line him up on the, on the line of scrimmage at the end of the line of scrimmage. Sometimes maybe you'll line him up in middle backer. Maybe it'll be sometimes an outside linebacker, but they are definitely trying to maximize his ability to go ahead and get the ball carrier on the ground. And, and I think we saw a bit of that. 
Yeah, and as always, Chevin Cordero was as advertised, as expected. He was sound. Threw the ball away when it was necessary. He didn't take any unnecessary chances. Uh, Just showing an incredible amount of poise and maturity. Kind of got the feeling and the understanding during that game as to why the coaching staff has been so vocal in their support of Chevin Cordero. He looked like he was very much in control of this offense out there. Does this performance by Hawaii change in any way your expectation moving forward? They got a tough one on national TV coming up this week a Friday game rescheduled because of the national TV window at Wyoming in Laramie thank goodness the forecast appears to be a little warmer here for this upcoming weekend than it was this past weekend for Wyoming Wyoming coming off of an overtime loss to Nevada which was a surprise to many because Wyoming was expected to maybe push on the heels of Boise State as being the best team that would come out of the traditional mountain division so does the expectation for Hawaii change in any way based on their performance against Fresno State. Yeah, as we record this on Monday, it's nine degrees in Laramie, Wyoming. It should warm <laughs> up a little bit. Uh, clear skies expected for Friday, although the high is only, only 48 degrees. But, but when you're talking about nine degrees, it's a little different. It doesn't change the expectations too much for me. Uh, this, it, it's great to win on the road, right? A season opening win on the road in Fresno. Fans, no fans, $60 cutboard cutouts or not. Uh, it is still a good, good win. And, and so for this team and, and kind of taking stock, right, of the rest of the Mountain West, and we saw a lot of the teams on the schedule sort of play each other over the weekend, I don't think it changes too much. I think it's a team that expects to win a fair amount of games this year and contend. And we'll find out a little bit more, obviously. I think this is the more difficult of the two games to start off the road trip here coming up on a Friday on a short week in Laramie, elevation, cold, all the above. Um, But what we saw was them take care of business in a game that they weren't perfect. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, mistakes or otherwise, the one thing Todd Graham wants to see is his team be the more physical team out there on the field. And he commented about that after the game. He said, look, at the very least, we were the more physical team. And more often than not, the more physical team will bear the benefit of the end result. All right, well, it was a much rougher debut for another guy with Hawaii ties. Taulia Tongovailoa, the younger brother of Tua Tongovailoa, was given the start. It was kind of a secret thing up until game time for Maryland. He transferred over there from Alabama to reunite with head coach Mike Loxley, former coordinator at Bama. Loxley had chosen his starter about a week prior to the opener for Maryland against Northwestern, but didn't want to announce it. So it wasn't until just prior to game time that we caught wind that Taulia was in fact going to be the starting quarterback Threw for 94 yards through three picks. It was a 43 to three loss for Maryland against Northwestern. Now to his credit, Taulia took ownership of what happened in the post game press conference. How discouraged though, do you think Taulia even head coach Mike Loxley should feel after this first game of the season? It, it wasn't good, right? I mean, there's no sugarcoating that one. Uh, and, and I think, you know, to their credit, they didn't try to sugarcoat it either. It was disappointing. You know, this is a team that brought in Mike Loxley to try and turn the fortune, right, for a Maryland program that is trying to find their footing since joining the Big Ten. And, you know, they, hey, they're bringing in a, a, a guy who's obviously to his brother, but an Alabama transfer, right, and an SEC caliber quarterback in Talia. And he's a guy that that I've spoken very highly of having watched him early on in his high school career. And look, this, they, they didn't play Ohio state. They didn't, they didn't play Wisconsin here. They, they played Northwestern and that's no discredit to, to Pat Fitzgerald and his guys. But I mean, that's a, you know, an, a decent to maybe above average big 10 team and, and heck maybe Northwestern goes on one of their runs this year, but to get shellacked 43 to three to Northwestern, there's no way to feel good about that. And that's one of those where you got to look at the tape and then flush that thing down the toilet. 
uh, and try and get back to work. But yeah, there's, there's, there's no sugarcoating this thing. I mean, he threw for less than a hundred yards and three interceptions and they lost by 40. Like that, that, there's nothing to feel good about that. Yeah. And uh, according to coach Loxley, he felt like there were some poor decisions that were made throwing into double coverage, hurrying throws, but uh, Taulio was very quick to point out, Hey, look, this is game number one. And this is a work in progress. Uh, it's a new program for him. It's a new program under circumstances, unlike any other in terms of the preparation because of this pandemic, I'm not going to give him a free pass here on this because that wasn't a good performance. But I think to that end, you can at least hold out hope that maybe that was an atypical performance uh, and maybe there's improvement uh, to be enjoyed here moving forward that's really all you can hope for uh, at this point all right as far as baseball is concerned uh, the Dodgers one win away from claiming a World Series would be their first since 1988 but are we seeing or have we seen some redemption for Clayton Kershaw Kershaw went five and two-thirds innings in game five of the World Series giving up two runs earning the win in a 4-2 victory for the Dodgers putting them up 3-2 Kershaw who has been labeled by many and justifiably so to a very large degree as a great pitcher who can't win the big one in the postseason is now four and one this postseason, including 2-0 in the World Series. Dodgers, again, leading the Rays 3-2 at the time of this recording. Has the narrative surrounding Clayton Kershaw officially changed, Jordan? Well, at least at least for now, right? And I think that's it's a good thing because it's not like Kershaw has been abysmal in the postseason. He, he just hasn't been nearly what he had been in the regular season. He obviously has some very infamous poor moments within the postseason, and, and he's been terrific here in in this playoffs as well as the world series and and to his credit the the dodgers have have rallied behind him and and given him some run run support the hard part for me is hey if this goes to a seventh game and and maybe it will right and and maybe we'll get lucky we get to a seventh game and the rays just keep never dying right as as they have to this point if he comes out of the bullpen, like if Dave Roberts taps him like he has before and he comes in like the seventh or eighth inning of a game seven and gives up a run or something like that, then this immediately goes back to what we were talking about before the World Series began. And maybe that's just me being very pessimistic. But uh, yeah, up to, up to this point, if they close this out either tomorrow or on Wednesday uh, and he continues to, you know, either the, if the, the book is closed on him or if he even has another moment, I think that I think that narrative will will change quite a bit permanently. Yeah, we do a weird thing when it comes to these sports guys, right? Like careers and, and how we perceive them to after they win a championship. You saw it with John Elway. You saw it with LeBron James. You've seen it with all these superstars where before they win that championship, it's he can't win the big one. He doesn't know how to do it. He chokes under pressure. And yes, there are some instances of Clayton Kershaw giving up the big hit and not coming through when the team needed him most. Uh, among those, though, a few years back when they played the Astros in the World Series and the Astros were proven to be cheating and were laying off every single breaking ball that he was throwing, which is basically his money-making pitch, and somehow they knew it was coming. That could have changed the narrative even back then. But I do think that if the Dodgers finish it off, and I think it requires the Dodgers finishing it off and winning the championship, that's when people will now look at Clayton Kershaw and be like, all right, he's a champion. And he pitched pretty darn well here in this World Series. And so it will almost be like what happened when John Elway won the first of his two Super Bowls, where it was like, okay, I guess we, we take that monkey off of his back. And I do think that it will change the narrative. He won't be the greatest postseason pitcher of all time or anything like that. But I do think that the whole choker 
label and that moniker and people having fun with the meme of the Joker movie poster with Clayton Kershaw's face on it with the clown makeup. And instead of Joker, it says choker. Like, I do think that stuff is history. I think that will be washed away if the Dodgers close this thing out and win the championship, because I think he's done what he's had to do to this point. All right, so we flip it to the octagon, and Khabib Nurmagomedov's career in mixed martial arts is officially over. At least that's what he said after his dominant victory over Justin Gaethje. Khabib was unbelievable again. Uh, Perhaps a fighter like no other. Maybe nothing we've ever seen before, and perhaps nothing we will ever see again. 29-0 for his mixed martial arts career, and this was the first fight following the passing of his father, who was very close to him, always in his corner throughout his career. And so feeling all of that emotion and actually putting it on display after a choke-out victory, we heard Khabib say out loud that this was going to be his last fight, that he couldn't envision himself continuing to fight without his father in his corner. So that's a wrap on his career, at least as of now. If it is, Jordan, is Khabib Nurmagomedov the greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all time? It's hard to argue against, right? The unblemished record kind of speaks for itself. His dominance, I I think, also on top of everything, not just in terms of the record, but how he went about and winning all those bouts, uh, was just emphasized. And it was the exclamation point this past weekend where where he defeats Justin Gaethje, who people talked themselves into, right? I maybe bought a little bit. I'm like, okay, maybe he's got the stuff to challenge Khabib in this. And then he goes out and submits him like he always does with a broken foot. <laughs> he wasn't even he wasn't even 100% physically, let alone emotionally, right? And everything that came with this year for him, losing his father, right? Apparently made a promise to his mother. Like the, the, the emotions obviously poured out. You know, it was bittersweet, like to see the dominance and to see still how good he is against one of the rising stars in Justin Gaethje and one of the more dangerous fighters just in his style, right? And he can catch you at any moment. You know, even at 32 years old, Nurmagomedov is still the pinnacle like he is still the standard in the sport and to, to see him walk away while being at the top of his game seemingly uh you know is bittersweet right and it's it's the second dominant champ to to immediately retire right like Henry Cejudo did a couple of months ago and so the UFC has lost some some pretty big time stars and and maybe Khabib was a, a little more popular than Cejudo or, or whatnot but yeah it, to me he's he's got to be number one I think right I would put him number one. There was just a ferocity about Khabib uh, in every fight. And it didn't matter what style of fighter he was going up against. He went up against some of the greatest strikers that we've seen in that sport, certainly in that division. Uh, What we saw him do against Conor, doing it again against a great striker and wrestler and Justin Gaethje, uh, and just closing the gap and maintaining control and just dominating the fight. I don't know if we've seen anything quite like that stylistically. He's not the greatest striker. There are all kinds of other sort of sexy aspects of the fight game that maybe you wouldn't say Khabib is on par with the elites in. Uh, But when it came down to ferocity and just winning and doing what he does, nobody has done it better. And so, yeah, I would put him number one. The other thing I really appreciate about Khabib is this was real, man. Even like press conferences and those kinds of things, it wasn't about hyping it up. It wasn't about selling tickets. He wasn't putting on a show. This was for real. Like Habib was going into the octagon to terrorize his opponent because that was his mission. 
and there wasn't any concern about the fluff around him. We saw that real, honest, genuine emotion even after that win over Gaethje, and he was very honest. He was very upfront, and that's something that I will always appreciate about Khabib Nurmagomedov. It was not in any way pretense. This was, this was a guy who took what he did very seriously. All right, time now for our Domino's Hawaii main topping. Very stoked to be uh, giving to you our interview with Christy Yamaguchi, gold medalist in figure skating in 1992. Uh, Her organization, Always Dream Foundation, has helped so many children. Its focus is on children's literacy. We talk about that, plus her affinity for Hawaii and so much more. All right, so let's go ahead and play that interview with Christy Yamaguchi. Aloha, Christy. How are you doing? How's uh, life treating you under these very strange circumstances? Aloha. Yes. Um, I mean, I can't complain too much. Uh, we've been doing well here in California, slowly but surely um, opening up again. But, you know, the kids are still at home doing school, but uh, everyone's doing well so far. Thank you. Well, the kids are getting a little older. I actually had the privilege of, of talking with you a few years ago for the Hawaii Chamber of Commerce luncheon, and we were talking about how talented your two daughters were. One was dancing hula competitively, another one was skating competitively. Where are they as far as their extracurricular activities now that they're kind of getting into their uh, mid to late teens here? Yes, well, our older daughter, Kira, is still dancing hula. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of their events and competitions got canceled or postponed this year. Uh, But they're still hoping to do some kind of virtual online, um, you know, hoike for their groups. But we'll see. So she, she, they do still do Zoom classes and keep busy that way. And she's uh, starting some acting a little bit, uh, which is fun for her. Uh, the younger one is, is still skating a little bit and, you know, it kind of gets her out of the house and into the rink, which is nice. And then uh, it's, you know, a little bit of soccer as well. As they're not playing games or anything, but just some some training. So they're, they're both keeping busy, which is good. And it's, you know, it's been hard through all this, but um, it's nice that things are slowly starting to, to go forward. Yeah, and I'm sure you're you're keeping busy as well. We did kind of want to get into your background and and your story, but uh, we kind of wanted to start in the present um, and ask you, you know, with your foundation, your Always Dream Foundation, and and you guys have uh, done incredible work, not just on the mainland, but here in Hawaii. And, and what's been what's it been like for you and the foundation here uh, as this pandemic has unfolded? Well, it was interesting when uh, California and uh, Arizona and Hawaii, which is where our schools are that we serve, um, first went into shelter in place. We were like, oh no, you know, what's going to happen? You know, thank goodness our students um, have the tablets and access to the internet uh, because of the design of the program. So we actually saw um, an increase of about 15% of minutes read per day um, from, you know, all of our families that are in the program. And, um, you know, I think that was just kind of the start of like, okay, we're going to be at home. The kids need to keep busy and, you know, let's get them reading books. And, um, you know, we kept moving forward because our program is home-based and we focus a lot on family engagement and really empowering the parents to be a part of their child's um, education at home it's become more relevant than ever. And, um, you know, with this distance learning with a lot of the kids at school, um, at least now they are still getting access to high quality books that they can enjoy and and sit down and read with their parents. And 
um, you know, and, and kind of adjust to that, that home environment. <laughs> yeah, well, what was it about literacy that sort of led that to be the focus of, of your mission and the, the foundation's mission? Yeah, so it really kind of stemmed around the time our daughters were about four and six. So the kind of that learn to read age and my husband and I um, really spent a lot of time reading to them. Um, usually the, the ritual of bedtime reading, you know, three to four books before bed. And um, we just, we really saw the benefits of that reading routine and the interest they had in a lot of different things. Um, because of that exposure from from books um, and as we decided to focus on education with the uh, with always dream um, you know it just became apparent that you can't build on your education if you don't have that strong foundation of literacy and it was pretty shocking to learn that 60% of low-income families have no books in the home and to think that some kids don't have that opportunity to even have that, um, you know, that love of learning, that love of books developed because they've never seen one. Um, it was just, you know, hard to accept. So I knew we could do something about that and really um, be responsible for putting high quality books that are age appropriate into the hands of as many kids as we can. Well, what I really appreciate about your efforts is, you know, someone of your stature uh, could have very easily just taken the time to, you know, speak at fundraising events to help raise certain charity funds. Uh, but this is an endeavor that you are very much hands on with. This is a roll up the sleeves type of journey for you. Why was it important for you to be that active and to take such an active role? I think it's it's just something I feel very passionate about, and um, you know, even when we were designing the program, um, you know, I was just really strong on it being digital based because yes, it's early to put a tablet into the hands of a child, but look where we are now. It's just it's an essential part of learning, and the digital world is not going anywhere, and more and more. Um, content is available digitally and um, I think it's engaging it allows us to offer thousands and thousands of books versus um, you know a couple of hardcover books here and there um, but I don't know I, I, was, I think just seeing the effect that reading had on our own kids and how well they started to do in school um, you know I just wanted to try to fix uh, one small part of our education system or just be, you know, a, an important piece of the puzzle so that a child can pursue their dreams and pursue um, success in school and in life by having the, the tools that they need. And the organization has focused heavily on California, Arizona, and here in Hawaii. What, what is it about Hawaii that holds a special place in your heart? Well, Hawaii has always been like a, a second home to me. Um, <laughs> as Jordan's family knows, <laughs> uh, we're often in Maui and saying, hey, Barry, can we go golf? <laughs> um, but we're, we have a condo in uh, North Kanapali and um, we got married in Hawaii on the big island. So we've just gotten to know so many great friends and family, you know, people. And um, when we... We're starting to expand our work. We really look into areas where the need is great um, academically and um, just resource-wise. And uh, looking at the schools in Hawaii, we 
saw all of that. We saw that there was great opportunity to really get in and um, impact a lot of students and uh, you know many schools, not just on Oahu, but we are hoping to be on the outer islands in the next uh, year or two as well. And it's um, it's a special place for sure. Uh, Christy, I kind of wanted to ask you about sort of your beginnings when you, when you got into to figure skating and, and competitions. Uh, sort of take us back and, and how did that all develop? Uh, how did you how did you get into the sport and uh, kind of the origin of it all? So yeah, I was about six and um, went to see a, a local ice show at the skating rink. It, it was in the mall and. I don't know. It was just magical with the lights and the music and uh, especially the costumes, you know, <laughs> all the sparkles. So that was, you know, one thing that caught my eye and I wanted to try it. Um, I loved it from the very first time my mom took me and asked to go back over and over and over. And, you know, I think I probably wasn't the most coordinated or talented, but I think my parents saw that it, it brought something out in me. Like I was, you know, willing to, learn and to put the work in and so they nurtured that and eventually um, I started competing and doing small competitions locally and, and then that kind of grew from there so I mean, I mean in some ways they didn't really know what they were getting into which was good <laughs> you know the long hours and the early mornings at the rink but um, you know I think you know when they saw how dedicated I was towards it they um, you know, as long as my grades stayed up, they allowed me to, to keep skating. And at one point, did it, did it get serious where, where you were at the point where it's like, hey, this, this could be something, you know, hey, I'm pretty good at this. And, and there's some pretty big goals that I, I want to get after. Probably it got like turned the corner in uh, junior high school age, middle school age. Um, at that point, I started competing uh, regionally and um, along the West Coast in California. So I started to see the other competition that was out there outside of, you know, the immediate area I trained in, and that was exciting. And I think was motivating to uh, continue on and, you know, eventually have the goal of competing nationally someday. So um, yeah, at that point, probably junior high age, I was going every day um, before school and, and sometimes after school as well. Um, and I knew that it was, it was going to kind of be my, my one activity to focus on. So at that point, does the, the target become calibrated to the Olympics? Like, are you already at that point where you're like, I'm taking this seriously. Are you already making that the, the goal to make it to the Olympics and, and contend for a gold medal? I mean, I think at that point, I was just so far away, you know, I think that the Olympics was definitely the ultimate goal, but it was just such a huge dream that, um, you know, at 12, 13 years old, it, it doesn't really seem possible, but, you know, why not do what we can and take those little steps to, to get closer to it. So, you know, every, it was like taking one small step every year and, and kind of improving and uh, get to that national level. And then once I was at the national level, it's like, okay, let's try to get in the top half of the group. So maybe I can compete internationally. Uh, so at 16, I received my first international competition and that was really exciting and, um, you know, and, and kind of kept going from there. <laughs> So we fast forward a little bit to 1992, which turns out to be a magical year for you. Um, take us through maybe the, the memory or memories that, that stand out the most from 
from that competition and any of the elements that you were feeling at the time? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, certainly a whirlwind, but obviously I wanted to soak everything in because it was a, a lifelong pursuit and just um, it, it was such an honor and a dream to be there representing the United States. And that was the first biggest thing was just at the U.S. Championships when I was named to the team. Um, it was just like this whole weight was let off my shoulders. It's like, okay, I, I can officially say I'm an Olympian and that was my dream. You know, it almost doesn't even matter what happens there. Um, I mean, of course it does, but, um, you know, that huge goal had been accomplished. And, um, you know, one of the most special things I think at the Olympics and I probably 99% of the athletes will say this was walking in in marching in the opening ceremonies. And, um, you know, it's like an all day endeavor. And, you know, unfortunately some competitors can't even take part in it because it's it's really exhausting. And if they're competing that the next day, a lot of times they can't participate, but, um, you know, you're lining up outside the stadium and you're waiting there for a few hours and you get the chance to meet all of the other athletes um, on your team, you know, the, you know, we're just figure skating, right? But then you have the, the downhill skiers and ski jumpers and the bobsledders and the speed skaters. And you just feel, you start to feel really connected to the games and representing your country and feeling so lucky that, um, wow, like these athletes are all the best in their field. And I can't believe I'm here with them. And, uh, you know, walking into the stadium, even though we were in Albertville, France um, in 92, um, there, there must have been a lot of Americans there because as soon as they announced, you know, United States of America and marching in, you could hear the stadium just go up in a roar. And um, I just remember walking around uh, doing our lap and sitting down and just like, wait, it's over already? Like, that was so awesome. Um, so, so, yeah, that's, you know, always <laughs> a, a fun and, and proud moment. I mean, it just, it doesn't matter, I guess, the endeavor for anybody, right? Everyone sort of feels that moment of pressure where they're, whether they're about to give a presentation at work or, you know, they're, they're competing in some other uh, form of, of athletic discipline. Uh, but I just can't imagine how you are able to channel all of that, all of the outside stresses and pressure into that single performance or at least that series of performances. How did you do that? What was the technique you utilized yourself in channeling all of that outside pressure and still being able to maintain focus? Yeah, it's pretty scary. Uh, <laughs> and there was moments of terror actually. And um, like literally in the locker room, getting ready and about to put my skates on, I just remember having this dread, like, why am I doing this? I don't <laughs> even want to go out there now. And then I think, you know, it clicks in like, oh my gosh, you put in 14 years of your life and you've, worked so hard and so many people have supported you, my coaches, my choreographers, my family, you know, the community, um, you know, this is it. Like you can't give up now. And you kind of, I, I don't know, I just dug deep to find the strength. And I knew, you know, I just kept reminding myself, okay, you trained hard, you're ready. Um, and really it's just that one thing. It's like, you're ready, you're ready. Like I, I didn't leave anything on the table. I had no regrets. I knew, you know, it was now or never, if, it, if things worked out great, if not, then okay, you know, that's sport, but maybe go to another Olympics and try it again. 
So, um, so it's tough. I, I think, you know, a lot of preparation obviously is the key for that confidence. And then um, I also did some visualization um, a lot the night before and the day of just seeing myself perform the routine and exactly how I wanted to perform it. Um, and then just positive self-talk, you know, it was just trying to not let, what if you fall or what if this happens or, you know, and just replace that with like, you know, skate fast, bend your knees, like, uh, be positive. Um, all those things my coach, you know, would tell me every day in practice. <laughs> I got sick of hearing, um, but it was just like, you know, stand up straight and all the, all those things to, to try to not think about what was actually happening in that moment. And you, re you return home as a gold medal winner as a gold medalist uh, what was that like in the aftermath i'd imagine it was a bit of a bit of a blur but but take us through the the return home and sort of the um the following accolades if you will um yeah it was pretty special i think you don't truly grasp how many people actually watch the olympics until you know that moment when you do return home um i you know one of the nice things the my the skating club that i represented here in the Bay Area, um, had a really, really nice celebration. And, um, you know, so many people from my younger skating years and uh, who supported me and, and helped me as I was coming up as a young skater were there. My hometown of Fremont, California, uh, did a parade, <laughs> which I thought I was like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Like, what is this? But, um, you know, it's funny because to this day, I'll meet people. They're like, I'm from Fremont. I saw you at the parade. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my gosh, that's so wild. Um, but it, 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 I think in that moment, you, you just realize how much support you had out there as an athlete and, um, you know, how just fortunate you, you are to have had it end up the way it did. And, you know, you mentioned how many people just watch the Olympics and, and how many eyeballs, whether it's via the competition or, or seeing you, you know, on a, on a magazine cover or something like that. I, my, my girlfriend, who's also Japanese-American, she, she has never been more excited when I told her we were interviewing somebody for this podcast. And, and she shared and with me. It was very candid talking about, you know, Christy Yamaguchi is the first person she saw on a magazine cover that, that looked like her, that, that showed her that somebody that looked like her could aspire to, to heights like that or, or accomplishments like that. Uh, and it, it kind of, you know, struck me. And, and so I was just kind of wondering, you know, have, have people shared that with you, uh, what that kind of... Um, you know, I don't know if responsibility is the right word or whatnot, but uh, just sort of carrying that mantle as an inspiration, you know, for, for little girls everywhere, for, for Asian-American girls, Japanese-American girls. Yeah, I think it, it, you know, it kind of hit me afterwards. And uh, I started to receive a lot of um, inquiries and support from the Asian-American community. And um, in particular, an organization here in San Francisco, uh, the... Uh, uh, Japanese American Community Center of Northern California reached out and they actually helped with my fan mail and I think hearing um, what it meant to them and how they viewed it, it that, that it started to slowly sink in it's like wow yeah I guess you know I just felt like a California girl going out there and pursuing her dreams you know lucky to have the family I did to, to support me and and let, indulge me in the, in this pursuit but um you know it really did start 
you know, those wheels turning to, to think back on my family history. And, you know, I, I literally was one generation out from a family who lost everything and uh, being interned in the Japanese internment camps. And, uh, you know, my mom was born in one. So it was, I, I started to realize how much they blazed that trail for the next generation like me to go out and pursue the Olympic dream or the American dream. And, um, you know, it, it was a tough road for them. And I think I started to really appreciate a lot more, um, obviously what, you know, the generations ahead of me had done to, to make that possible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of talk these days about representation matters and, you know, it's so great to see that in the media, in the, in Hollywood, a lot of that is changing and a lot, the spotlight's being shined on that, um, particular issue. And, um, you know, I, I remember having my, one of my idols, Tiffany Chin, she was the first Asian American, um, national champion. Um, back in the 80s and I had a strong connection with her and wanted to be just like her and I think for the same reason you know she I looked like her you know and she was Asian American and um, and one of the first so I think you know things like that um, hopefully you know open the door and make uh, other people realize that hey anything is possible. No, it, it really is special. Uh, to kind of switch gears, your family in general is very successful. Your husband, Brett, is a Stanley Cup champion. So who gets the, the higher mantle? Is it the gold medal? Is it the, <laughs> you know, the Stanley Cup? Is it the mirror ball from winning Dancing with the Stars when you tore yeah. that up? Uh, well, what gets the highest mantle in the household? Yeah, well, he's probably lucky the gold medal isn't here. <laughs> it's actually in Colorado Springs at uh, uh, U.S. Figure Skating Museum. But he does have like a, a replica Stanley Cup. Uh, and it's uh, on the shelf, and he made sure that the Mirrorball Trophy was right underneath it. <laughs> so that got the top spot. Um, and then uh, another place of prominence is, you know, he he's played over a thousand games in the NHL, and that's a huge milestone. So uh, on your thousandth game, you are gifted a, a silver hockey stick, and um, his whole team at that time had, had you know, it's like, like engraved and signatures on it. So um, between the Stanley Cup and his hockey stick, they're probably most prominent. <laughs> Didn't you guys meet at the 92 Olympics? Because he's a two-time Olympian himself. Was, was that the games where you guys actually met? And, and what's that like when you're both competing and maybe you meet somebody of interest and it's like, hold on, let me go uh, claim this gold medal real quick and then we'll uh, exchange numbers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we didn't meet at the Olympics and had, actually he was one of the people uh, among his other teammates for the hockey team that I met during the opening ceremonies as we were walking around meeting the other athletes. And when we were, uh, and, and you know, it, we were all focused on the games and what had to be done there. So, you know, no sparks were going there, but a few years later we got reintroduced and we made the connection of being at the Olympic games uh, or, you know, uh, on the same team and it was just like oh hey oh yeah I think I do remember meeting you so you know I think that connection and just kind of having similar lifestyles of life on the road and um, you know focusing on a professional career at, at the time um, you know kind of helped uh, push the relationship along. <laughs> <laughs> Has there ever been any argument as to what you extracted from 1992 that was of more value the gold medal or your future husband? 
<laughs> well, we, we've ever never actually compared, you know, which one was bigger or not. Um, I, I, I probably, they're pretty even. I mean, you know, we have two amazing daughters as family and, and I would never want to change a thing for that. So, um, you know, I think I, I just look at it as like an incredible and amazing year in 92. <laughs> You know, you have achieved so much uh, in your athletic career, uh, but professionally you have become a, a, a bit of a, a renaissance woman, if you will, right? You have written a children's book. We talked about your organization and how involved you are on that front. Uh, what else may the future hold for Christy Yamaguchi uh, looking forward? Are there any other aspirations at this time uh, of your life that, that you hold at the moment? Ooh, good question. I feel like right now it's like getting through day by day, <laughs> like everyone else out there. Um, but, you know, I think, I mean, there are a few things. Um, we're kind of in a pivotal uh, moment of growth with the foundation. And uh, we just uh, actually hired a new executive director to help us take us, um, you know, to new horizons. And um, so we're really looking to expand and grow and I think that's the most immediate goal is to, you know, get to 10,000 students and, and be helping as many as we can. Um, I would love to hopefully write another children's book in the, in the near future as well. I love being able to um, hopefully eventually visit schools again and uh, libraries where I can read to the kids. Um, you know, I think that's really when you see the light bulbs going on and the excitement that they have um, when story time is happening. So, um, so yeah, I, I guess those two things are probably the most immediate. And then our, our older daughter's a junior, so oh boy. hard to believe only one more year until she's off to who knows what. And I, I think it's just enjoying every minute of that until until she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, time flies, that's for sure. Um, your organization does so much great work. Uh, we would probably be doing a disservice to our listeners if we didn't give you an opportunity to uh, just give them some information as to how they can um, explore what the organization does and maybe contribute if, if they feel so inclined. Oh, absolutely. Alwaysdream.org is the website if you want to go and take a look at uh, a little bit more about us, what we do. Uh, we are currently in um, four schools on Oahu, um, our current program. We've, we've been in seven, and the new program is, is in four, uh, Kalihi and uh, Pu'uhale, uh, Hanu uh, Malama Hanua, and uh, Pope Elementary. And uh, the students are just incredible. And we're really looking forward to um, expanding the reading program, which targets kindergarten age students um, to even more schools. That's terrific. We'd also probably be doing our listeners a disservice if we didn't ask you because uh, this interview kind of started and, and really is taking place because of your connection to Jordan's dad, Barry, at the Wailea Blue Golf Course. So we got to ask, what kind of golf game does Christy Yamaguchi sport? <laughs> Me, terrible. Like, I, I'm really a fair weather golfer, and I, I mean, I probably golf once or twice a year at that. You know, it's finding the time. Um, you know, I, I don't hit the ball very far, so I, I don't lose very many balls on the course, which is usually good, but, um, you know, if I do a golf tournament, I usually say, I'll, I'll just putt the ball and you guys <laughs> can do the rest of the work. Uh, but, you know, Brett, my husband, on the other hand, you know, he's always trying to 
do whatever it takes to become that, you know, scratch golfer. <laughs> I don't know if or when that'll ever happen, but you know, it's a good goal, I guess. Yeah. The, the competitive juices are flowing no matter what the endeavor is. Uh, Christy, we yeah. can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us. Uh, it's always wonderful to see you and, and congratulations on uh, all of your success with the organization and, and with the family and beyond uh, best of luck getting through this ordeal that uh, is the pandemic and, and of course beyond that. Yes. Thank you. And, and, you know, you know, health and safety to all, both of you as well. Thank you so much. All right. Big thanks to Christy Yamaguchi. I mean, how often are we going to be treated to speaking with someone of that stature in the world of sports and beyond? Uh, very, very exciting and thrilling for us. And we thank her for her time. All right. It's time for our post game, Jordan. Best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii. Maui's premier full service refuse company offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community. Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information give me your best for this episode of the pod yeah my best i'm just in awe at joe buck and i know he's a controversial play-by-play guy i actually enjoy joe buck quite a bit but he's i don't I, I i try to trace back but i think he's called the game like almost every day this month whether it's been an nfl game or a high level major league baseball playoff game i mean he he called game five of the world series yesterday being sunday right the last three days he's called games three four and five last week thursday the 22nd he called a thursday night football game called games one and two the two previous days called a special monday football edition that was the chiefs bills the day before the previous day he called a regular sunday nfl game the previous six days before that he called games one through six of the nlcs uh, between the dodgers and uh, Braves. And then before that, he called a football game on the 11th, which was a Sunday. And then I think he called one on the Thursday prior to that. So he's called the game every day for the last like 15 days, whether it's been NFL or Major League Baseball, how he still has a voice. I don't know how he still has energy. I don't know. I know he's calling World Series games and NFL games. So don't get me wrong. Of course, it's easy to get up for those games. But it every every year we kind of go through this a little bit where he he's going back and forth and doing some of these stuff similar guys do similar things like chris fowler when he's doing like the u.s open of tennis as well as college football and kind of bouncing back and forth like jim nance goes from like the final four to the masters to to doing all kinds of stuff but this joe buck streak because of all the condensed schedules i am in awe man yeah, I love the line he had, too, because I think John Smoltz brought it up. He's like, you're doing Monday Night Football. Here you are now with World Series. And he's like, yeah, I feel like Seacrest <laughs> on national television in some capacity every night. All right, my best is, hey, look, man, the dude who was the guest on our podcast just last week, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, was named the Gold Glove finalist third baseman for the Texas Rangers. I think actually should be the favorite to win it because his analytics and metrics are just off the charts. Colton Wong, who is the reigning Gold Glove winner at second base for the St. Louis Cardinals, he was named a finalist again, and so awesome to see those two guys from Hawaii uh, being able to once again earn some acknowledgement and accolades and we're crossing our fingers hoping that they go from finalists to winners of the gold glove it would be very fitting and very cool uh, and certainly very excited that we were able to talk to Isaiah uh, hopefully preceding his uh, glory of accepting that gold glove honor all right let's move to our worst what's your worst buddy yeah my worst uh, this was actually great for you because I know you were following the Lions game yesterday but <laughs> the Lions were up two with like a minute left and Todd Gurley and the Atlanta Falcons have the football 
They're inside basically the 10 yard line. They're going to line it up for a chip shot field goal. If they just run the clock down, but instead the Lions basically let Todd Gurley score. He like gets to the half yard line and realizes, Oh, maybe I shouldn't score tries to fall down, had already crossed the goal line. And so he's just like lying there and the Lions players on defense are looking to the line judge and be like, hey, he scored, right? And so they wanted, they were cheering Todd Gurley scoring a touchdown on them because that was basically the only way they were going to get the ball back with a chance to go down and score, which they do tie the game on a touchdown, kick a PAT that was pushed way back because of penalties and, and Matt Prater banged it through and they win the game. Uh, it was it was crazy. It was absolutely like the, the fact that Todd Gurley sort of, changed his mind mid run. The fact that the lions players were celebrating a touchdown, like that was the most lions Falcons ending that, that, that could have ever played out. Yeah. As a lions fan, I am both embarrassed and very stoked that they were able to get their second straight victory. But yeah, there's that one picture right down the goal line where you have this collection of huge lions, defensive players who are all staring at the official to uh, signal for a touchdown. You have Todd Gurley, who's almost despondent by the fact that he didn't stay short of the goal line, which would have effectively probably won them the game. Uh, and it's just this really odd scenario. I would love just for the sake of seeing something we've never seen before for there to have been like just over two minutes left in the game and maybe the officials like signal that Todd Gurley was short of the goal line and I would love to see like a Matt Patricia challenge of the call like no that was a touchdown like we would never have seen before a team that was challenging that the other team did score a touchdown that would be an all-time first and I would have been all for that that would be the that that would be the end of things right it's like all right if, we're, <laughs> if that's happening let's just call the game let's just that's call right. the game both teams lose the Lions, baby. They do uh, things that are unprecedented. All right, my worst is, well, we got some cancellations of uh, another uh, big event involving the University of Hawaii. Uh, ESPN has Nick's plans to move several ESPN-owned preseason basketball events to the Orlando bubble. That includes the Diamond Head Classic, and that effectively cancels all the events, perhaps with the exception of the Champions Classic and the Jimmy V Classic, which would have to be moved to different locations. But the Diamond Head Classic, one of the signature tournaments for the University of Hawaii men's program and it looks like that is not going to be held here this year and it looks as though uh, the University of Hawaii is going to be strapped a little bit more to try to figure out how and when they're going to be scheduling non-conference games to go with the Big West schedules that were just announced last week. Yeah this is rough this is rough right it, at the very least it'll uh, it'll save a long road trip <laughs> uh, you know and you get to avoid the travel of trying to go across country but it's just this is becoming the norm, and uh, I think yeah, for the University of Hawaii, they may not be traveling outside of of California to go play some Big West games, perhaps. So here we go. My solution, just for this year alone, the Cocoa Head Classic, and it's just Hawaii and the three Division Two programs here in the state: UH Hilo, Chaminade, and Hawaii Pacific University. The Cocoa Head Classic, book it. Three non-conference games for Hawaii to add to the schedule. Are you down? Yeah, yeah, I'm in. Can we get you and uh, who was it, Jaron Nakano, to call the game on like public <laughs> access TV? We'll just broadcast all the public access channels across the state. This would be perfect. I'm sure we could. Hey, let's put it this way I'm available. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. Thanks once again to Christy Yamaguchi for joining us. What a thrill that was. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at Talk Sports 808. Jordan, we'll do it again soon, my man. See ya.